0: First Peter chapter two. Uh, this is the text where we were last sun or two Sundays ago, and uh, we will be there next week. Be here next week, and um, since I didn't finish in the first service, the sermon today, um, we may be here till Advent. I don't know. We'll just see. Uh, I have a lot to say. All right, so. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before the face of God. Verse 21 For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. He who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, when he suffered he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Holy Spirit, thank you for um, your presence here. Thank you for the mercy of God that is new every morning. Thank you, Lord, that uh, it is because of your tender mercies that we are not consumed Thank you for your faithfulness, that even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. Lord, I I take just a moment and I lift to you um, families in our congregation who have uh, lost loved ones. I pray, Lord, for uh, the Johnson family. I pray, Lord, for Ed and Carolyn and uh, Jim and Jenny. And I pray, Lord, for Pastor Josh and Angel and all of the family the passing of Inez. We're so grateful that she is in your presence. Uh, she served you faithfully, and we know God that she is with you today, where there is fullness of joy. Pray also, Lord, for the Townsend family. Chris, uh, having lost his father earlier in the week, I just pray God that you would comfort uh, Chris and that entire family. Um, just minister peace to them, and Lord. I pray for um, John and Jackie Thomas's son Chuck, who is in need, God, of a miracle. I pray, Lord, in there in Tennessee that you would minister to Chuck and and just encourage him and be with his family and strengthen uh, that family through this time. And Lord, as we um, approach this message today, um, as I prayed in the first service, uh, there is a sense of of pushback from the enemy because uh, we are upholding truth. And um, Satan is the father of lies and um, always wanting to resist truth. But Lord, we also know that um, it's important that even when truth is spoken, it be spoken in love. And so I find myself not, even fe- not only feeling uh, some enemy pushback, but also feeling the responsibility of making certain that truth is spoken with the love of Christ. And so I pray that you would enable me to do that. I ask God for your anointing, again, not because I deserve it or earned it, but because without it, I cannot communicate the truth of your word. Lord, there is a need for healing in our nation. There is a need for healing in the church. There's a need for the presence and power of God to return to the pulpits, to the pews, and certainly to our nation. And Lord, we can only start with us. And I pray that you would speak to us, challenge us, convict us, and make us very aware of what you are speaking to your church today. Give us ears to hear what the Holy Spirit would say. Give us hearts that will receive that truth and give us the stick to the patience, the perseverance to not be hearers of the word only, but to be doers of the word. So speak to us today, I pray. Help me to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which is from you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why do you turn around and, and nod at your neighbor or wave to them or whatever and um, greet them in that manner. And then you may be seated this morning. You may be seated. I want to... Um, remind everyone of the context of the series that we have been in now for uh, the last several weeks. And uh, that series is Exiles, A Letter to the Lost Who Have Been Found. And and our goal in this series is, is to help us learn how to live faithfully as Christians in a world to which we do not belong. Our citizenship, the Bible is clear, is in heaven, and uh, this is a world in which we are merely passing through. We are sojourners, we are travelers, we are exiles, but while we are here, we are called to live in a manner that is faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we want to learn how to navigate a world to which we do not belong, and a world that quite honestly, has gone a little bit crazy right now. I think all of us would agree there is a certain level of chaos and confusion that, that certainly plagues our nation. Two weeks ago, we looked at this text in First Peter chapter 2, this text about slaves and how they were to interact with their masters. And uh, we began talking also in that message about a battle that is raging, and it is, it is a battle that is raging in the minds, of, not only of our culture, but certainly in the minds of believers. Peter said that he wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, he said, I've written this letter to you just like the other letter. That would be 1 Peter, the one that we are studying. I wrote both of these letters to you so that I could stimulate you to wholesome thinking. The Greek word is elekrinos dianoia. And it, it is thinking that, that even with the bright light of the sun shining on it, it will hold up. It will be found pure, even with the brightness of the sun's rays shining on it. Peter said, I want you to learn how to think right. To have this, elicredes, the wholesome thinking. Now, Peter's advice to the slaves seems to be difficult for our 2020 minds even grasp. He says to them, don't resist, but submit, endure with fear, not fear of them, but fear, reverence of God, endure it, even be willing to suffer unjustly. He says, you may be treated in a manner that is unjust. He is asking them to approach this issue, not by the flesh and how the flesh wanted to respond, but to approach it through the Spirit and the power of the Spirit as the people of God. Peter uses the example of Jesus and his own unjust suffering. And he says that we are called to be like him and that we are to follow in his footsteps, follow his example. You remember the word example is hupagramus, which is uh, a picture of the letters that children learning how to write their alphabet would would trace. He said, Jesus, it is an example. We are to follow his example, his hupagramus, and we are to follow in his steps. We are to walk like he walked. Jesus also entrusted the father or he entrusted his own life to the father who he knew would ultimately vindicate him and who would judge righteously. This was the good news of the gospel to the slaves. The slaves under the Roman empire was that the good news is that the father sees and ultimately he will righteously judge and vindicate you. And Peter said, I don't want you to resist. I want you to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. It was a call to not to retaliate, not to respond back, not to return evil for evil. Now, look at me for just a moment. I said this two weeks ago. Seeking justice is appropriate. But as believers, we are never to repay evil for evil. We must learn to think biblically about every subject that we are facing in our world today and live the way that Jesus lived this is the way that he calls us to walk. So how do we learn to think this way? How do we learn to elecrenos dianoe, to live and walk with wholesome thinking, the mind of Christ? You remember two weeks ago, we ended the sermon uh, telling the story True story, a movie was documented about the story of Saru Briarly, this little five-year-old boy who was on a train headed toward Calcutta and he fell asleep and he got separated from his family and, and could never get back to his family. And finally, he wandered around. Finally, he was taken by the state and eventually adopted into another family. And at the age of 31, 26 years later, when he was on Google Maps... He decided, you know what, I could probably zoom in to, to all of the, the outlets that go away from Calcutta, the train stations, and I could probably find that train station that I've etched in my mind. And he did that, and he went there, and he ultimately found not only the train station, but his home and his mother. He was reconciled 26 years later, but it was because he had the right map. He had a way to get there. Wholesome thinking. This whole idea of thinking right or thinking the way that God wants us to think is to consider all the subjects of our culture through the lens of Scripture as the map that is the origin of our worldview or the way that we see. Peter says this, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. The way back uh, to some kind of normalcy, at least in the church, because there is division not just in our nation, not just in our political arenas, there is great division even within the body of Christ. The way back is the roadmap. It's the word of God. It's the life of Christ. Can I say this to you? Neither Paul nor Peter neither Peter nor Paul later, were okay with oppression. They were not okay with slavery. They were not okay with oppressive patriarchy. Later, both of them will deal with how a husband and wife were to interact and relate in the home. As a matter of fact, however, both Paul and Peter do more for slaves and do more for women and do more for children than anyone else in the first century. Slaves and children and women were considered nothing more than chattel or property, not human in the Greco-Roman culture. But what both Paul and Peter taught was radical to their ears because both Peter and Paul taught that you are indeed something. You are created in the image and likeness of God and there is no difference between male and female. You are all neither slave nor free, Jew and Gentile. All of you are important. And so both Peter and Paul elevated in a radical way for the first century both the levels of women and slaves and children. But what Peter taught and what Paul would later teach was that unless a heart was changed, nothing would be accomplished. We would move from one oppression to another, from one violence to another, from one hatred to another, and never deal with the root issue, and reconciliation would never occur, and justice would never be found. I want you to put the uh, graphic on the screen of this iceberg for just a moment. Uh, there, there is a frenzied chaos. You can look at me for just a moment. A frenzied chaos that has overcome our nation um, over the last several weeks. This is not something that just occurred. Um, the chaos has developed over the last few weeks. The division is sharp. Racial tensions are great. Political rhetoric is hateful and vindictive, listen to me, on both sides of the political aisle. The church is being sucked into this. And I would suggest to you we're getting off message because we have not been bold enough to speak truth in love to a culture that needs to hear that truth. The church should be leading the way in bringing peace. The church should be leading the way in bringing racial reconciliation. But we can't do it the way the world does it. It'll never happen the way the world wants it to happen. You see, I would suggest to you that the real danger of this iceberg is not what the eye can see. The eye can see that and can navigate around it. It will cause no damage. It's what's underneath the surface usually much more than what's above the surface that is so damnable and so destructive. There's something going on beneath the surface that has been going on beneath the surface for decades, centuries, really since the beginning of time. I don't have all the answers, um, but I'm going to suggest to you that there is a way forward in the church for us to be the people God has called us to be to proclaim the gospel in the midst of a divided world, to find unity in the church. But there is a battle that is raging that to the untrained eye, it is unable to see. It's a spiritual battle that is raging. And to fight that battle requires spiritual weapons, not fleshly ones, because we will be destroyed if we try to fight a spiritual battle with carnal weapons. I'm going to do my best over the next... first said two weeks, it's going to be at least three, to walk through this with humility and grace. And I will say that much of the foundational material to this, I uh, borrowed uh, from others as well, but I think that you'll find it helpful and challenging. I want you to consider what you have heard recently. How, How many have heard or said these kinds of things? I've never Experienced anything quite like this before. I think most of us have said that or heard that. I don't know who to believe or what to trust. How many of us, if we didn't say it or haven't heard it, we certainly have thought that. I just want things to return to normal. This is a troubling season. I think all of us feel that way, and certainly those around us feel that way. Politics have completely polarized. There's either right or left. You're either part of the deep state trying to take Trump out, or you think think Trump is a Russian spy, or there are some evangelicals that think he is the Messiah who has come to set up his kingdom. And every one of those mentalities exists. Really sad thing is they may all exist here in this church. How many want my job? Do You want that? There are those that think COVID-19 is a hoax, politically driven. There are others that think 2 million American people are going to die in the next few months. And there are others who are just saying, I thought we were going to flatten the curve. And again, all of those exist. And again, I'll tell you, I'll give you my job free. I'll pay you to do this job. When it comes to global warming, some think it's all human. Some think it's all a conspiracy Some think that the world is going to end and some are wanting to jump on the new green deal. When it comes to race relations, we have riots. We have people apologizing for things that they were never engaged in and everything in between. We have a chaotic world. People are grasping for truth. They're jumping on bandwagons. Most people in the church are picking one team or the other. And jumping to one extreme or another. And it's created a difficult world in which to navigate. It's all, about, um, it's all about narratives. Why are these issues viewed so differently? Why is there so much division? It's all about narratives. A story through which or a lens through which we see the world. There are grand narratives and there are personal narratives. There's God's story, there's our story. And when narratives that are competing collide, chaos emerges. Let me just suggest to you, just as a foundational stepping stone, if we are to navigate this and we are to be the church that we are supposed to be, then we need to think wholesomely and see through God's eyes. How many have ever said to your kids, or you remember as a kid hearing it, two wrongs do not make a right. How many are right? not that great parenting? That's great parenting. When your kid thinks it's okay to punch some, somebody because they punch them and you say, no, wait a minute, two wrongs don't make a right. We have the same thing today. Just because a response is incredibly wrong does not mean that it's okay to respond with an incredibly wrong response that you may think is just a little bit better than the incredibly wrong response that they had. And that's what we've got going on in our nation and certainly in the church world as well. The church, let me say this, I'll say it again at the end. Um, We are to uphold truth. How many think truth is pretty important? Do you think truth is important? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. In Psalm 68, the psalmist says, I have magnified my word above my name. So truth is important, but we are also as the church to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we need to uphold truth And we are also responsible for loving our neighbor as ourselves. I'll talk about that more in a few moments. Let me begin um, by talking about the war that rages. Last week, I addressed the weapons of our warfare. I said that they are spiritual. They're not carnal. They pull down strongholds. We are to take every thought captive. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, not conformed to this world. Harrington makes the point that we need to disciple our minds, and he shares four kind of important principles. Number one, God has spoken definitively in his son, Jesus Christ, and the Bible is Christ's final teaching and authority for truth. I want everybody to look right here for just a moment. If we don't start with this one. If if you want to deny the truth of God's word, we're going to have a difficult time sorting this out and coming to any kind of, of unifying principle. Because we believe, the word teaches, and as Christians, that God spoke in a definite way through Jesus Christ and his word. The 66 books of the Bible are God's final authority for truth. Say amen if you believe that. Secondly, the early church fathers were discipled by the apostles and they affirm the teaching of the apostles. Third, there is a centralizing tradition of over 2,000 years that affirms this truth to be the word of God. But here's the rub. Today we live in a postmodern and post-truth culture that struggles, that's not a strong enough word, that rejects an objective truth source. We now live, look at me for just a moment, we now live in a culture that says there is no absolute truth source. There is no single source that is true. America once embraced this objective truth, but today it is challenged on almost every hand, and especially by the academically are the academic elites and most news outlets, if not all of them. In one decade, according to Barna, America has gone from 50, in one decade, 50% practicing Christianity, we're not talking about beliefs, we're talking about practicing Christianity, to 25% in one decade. There's a conflict of worldviews. The worldview is a philosophy of life, a conception of the world, and how they guide the way we think regarding all issues. The iceberg helps us understand that there is something underneath. There's something going on underneath the surface that is leading to this seismic shift in our culture. The shift that is occurring... It is a shift of world views. Let me, I don't want to bore you, but we, we need to know this stuff. Let me just pause for a moment. I have for 35 years tried not to be a political preacher, tried to stay away from that. The gospel is good news. Jesus came to save. I want to preach that. I want people to grow in their relationship with Christ. I've tried hard to stay away from using the pulpit in any political way. Um, to not get caught up in peripheral issues that don't matter. Folks, number one, this is not political. And number two, this matters. Truth is important and we must uphold truth. Say amen if you believe that. I'll talk about um, at the end, really, the role of the church. The shift that has occurred is a shift of worldview. So what is a worldview anyway? It is a comprehensive conception or apprehension of the world, especially from a specific standpoint. How do, I, how do I see the world from where I stand? It's like wearing colored glasses. It colors everything we see and consequently it shapes our thinking. This is the most important. This is going to be the most important takeaway the next 10 minutes. And I'll probably be done in about 10 minutes. But I want you to understand what a worldview does and why it's important. And by the way, every one of you has a worldview. Everybody does. You see the world a certain way. We all see it a certain way. The question is, how do you see it? A worldview answers these questions. Number one, it answers the question of origin, who we are, who am I? Where did I come from? Where did I originate? What is the source of my being? Number two, a worldview answers. What is the fundamental problem with the world? Why is the world the way it is? What's caused this chaos? A worldview has to answer. We all sit back. We all have our ideas, but what lens are we looking through? Number three, what is the solution to that problem? Once we know what the problem is, what is the solution? Number four, what is my primary moral duty? What am I supposed to do about it? And number five, What is my purpose in life? So what is the biblical worldview? Where are we supposed to stand on those five questions? Number one, the biblical worldview says, answers the question, who am I? By beginning with creation. The Bible teaches that we were created in the image and likeness of God. It didn't matter if we were white or black, if we were Oriental, if we were Hispanic, if we were male, female. The Bible teaches that every one of us was created in the image of God. We had the Imago day stamped on us. The Bible further teaches that we were fearfully and wonderfully made, that he knit us, all of us together in our mother's womb. That he knew everything about us before we did one thing. He even knew the scariest verse in scripture. He knows what we're going to say before we even say, does that scare anybody other than me? It, it scares me. He knows how dumb I'm going to be and, and this dumb stuff I'm going to say. But it begins with creation. Every, this is, listen, get this, get this etched in your thinking. The biblical worldview is that every human, is an image bearer of God. Number 2. Biblical worldview is that the human the fundamental human problem is sin. We rebelled against God. Adam and Eve sinned and that sinful seed passed on. And it separates man from God and we all want to do our own thing. We all kind of you don't have to teach a 2-year-old that I mean, everybody understand that it, when a two-year-old or whenever they start walking, does not every toddler immediately move toward the knickknacks? How many know what I'm talking about? They, thats why you—that's why you childproof the house. How do you think that got there? Because we are sin, We want to do what's wrong. It is the bend of all of humanity. There's not—I've never seen a toddler that would walk up to the knickknack. Um, Tower or whatever you got there and just walk away because I'm not supposed to touch it. They want to do what they're not supposed to do. Say amen if you believe that. All right. You all had toddlers, so you understand. All right. The fundamental human problem is sin separates us from God. So thirdly, the biblical worldview, what is the solution to the problem? The solution is God sent Jesus for God. So loved the broken, messed up, jacked up world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And God commended his love, Romans 5, 8, toward us. And while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And those who placed their faith in him, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How many like that answer to the world's problem? That's the answer according to the biblical worldview. What is our primary moral duty then? It's to love God and love one another when the lawyer came to Jesus and asked him what the greatest commandment was, he said, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's our moral duty. And what is my purpose in life? It's eternal life with him. Knowing him more intimately. John chapter 20 Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, that believing you may have life in his name. 1 John 5, 13, these things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. At John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So everybody look right here for just a moment. Here's what the Bible teaches. This should this should be the way that we look at our world situation. This is the way that we should look at racism and division. Every human being is an image bearer of God. What created division was sin. What heals it is the cross. What my responsibility is to love God with all my heart and to love my neighbor and who is my neighbor. Every image bearer in the world is my neighbor. Whether they are my religion, whether they are doing what I like them to do, whether they're living a life that I think is right or not, I am to love my neighbor, no exclusions, because my ultimate goal is eternal life with him. Somebody say amen if you believe that. Now, there is a conflicting worldview. And that conflicting worldview, and I don't want to bore you, and some of you may roll your eyes and think, why do we have to talk about this? And again, I will just say to you, this is not what I would normally do, but we need to understand this. This is what is driving our world today. It's a worldview, and I'm going to oversimplify it. For those who know a lot about it, I'm going to probably butcher it in your mind because I'm going to try to oversimplify it. I want us to get the truth of this. Critical theory, it's the prominent theory or the prominent driving force of our culture today. It is at the core of much, if not almost all, higher learning. I'm not bashing on higher learning. I don't talk about this because it's no big deal. I just want you to understand, I'm not against higher learning. I have a master's and I earned my doctorate. I think education is important. So I'm not just saying education across the board is bad, but critical theory is at the core of most higher learning. It is the religion of the secularist and most culturally elite. And its tenets, listen to me, look at me, its tenets are contrary to the truth of God's word. And that's what we have to be aware of. Let me just read to you a quick little one paragraph definition Critical theory has a narrow and a broad meaning in philosophy and in the history of the social sciences. For those of you who may be critics and think, ah, he's pulling that off some religious website, this comes off of, this is the definition by Stanford University, all right? Not the hotbed of evangelicalism, all right? Critical theory, in the narrow sense, designates several generations of German philosophers and social theorists in the Western European Marxist tradition known as the Frankfurt School. According to these theorists, a critical theory may be distinguished from a traditional theory according to a specific practical purpose. A theory is critical to the extent that it seeks, notice this, it seeks human emancipation from slavery, acts as a liberating influence, and works to create a world which satisfies the needs and powers of, of human beings. Because such theories, watch this, because such theories aim to explain and transform all the circumstances that enslave human beings, many critical theories in the broader sense have been developed. They have emerged in connection with the many social movements that identify varied dimensions of the domination of human beings in modern societies. In both the broad and the narrow senses, however, a critical theory provides the descriptive and the normative basis for social inquiry aimed at decreasing domination and increasing freedom in all of their forms. Let me give you, let me break down that uh, definition by telling you what critical theory is and why we should be concerned about it. Number one. The first tenet of critical theory is there is no transcendent creator who has a purpose and design for our lives. Critical theory does not start with creation. It leaves God out. There is no, listen, there is no creator that put the image of God on you. There is no weaving together in our mother's womb. Instead, we evolved and the most powerful are the ones that have been the most successful because they have oppressed those that seem to be least powerful. Oversimplified, but that's what they believe. There is no creator. There is no image of God that is, or the Imago Dei, that is part of the essence of every human being. Can I say to you, besides our cultural issues or hot spots of today, this is dangerous. Not, It's not dangerous. It's damnable and destructive because if there is no... Purpose of life, no creator that gave purpose to life and put his image on all of us, then if that child is inconvenient, by all means abort it because it has no purpose in life and there is no, they are not an image bearer. If that elderly person is costing us too much money and quality of life isn't that great anyway, just go ahead and get rid of them because they don't really bear anything significant or important. They are not an image bearer, and so we don't need them. There is no transcendent creator as a purpose and design for life. Secondly, we live in relationship to others and other groups. Not in relationship to God. Because God is not in the picture. There is no God. So it's not about me and God. It's not about a life that needs to be holy because he is holy. It is about my relationship with other individuals and other groups. And so critical theory starts with oppression of one group over another. The biblical worldview starts with creation. And the problem is sin. But critical theory starts with oppression. One group, the reason we have chaos is because one group is overpowering or being oppressive to another group. And identity is all about our group. I am, here's a great announcement, you're going to love this, I am a white, straight, male, American Christian. How many, by the way, already knew that about me? Okay. I think you did. And if you want to talk about weight and hair, we'll do that another day. All right. But my identity, according to critical theory, my entire indent identity is I'm a white, white male, straight American Christian, not a child of God. Not an image bearer, not someone who God breathed into me the breath of life, not someone that God has a grand purpose for. I am just simply a white, male, American, straight Christian. And so my identity is that. Others have the identity as a white female atheist or a black female lesbian or a black Female transgender—it's all about identity groups. It's and and, and you know, and, and oppression is on this uh, on this. Um, I'm, not, I'm struggling for words barometer or or on this this um, measure that I am I would be the most oppressive. I am a white male Christian straight. And probably the most oppressed, I don't know if he's exactly right, according to critical theory, would be a black female transgender. And so everybody, it's just about identity groups and who is oppressing another identity group. And that is critical theory's problem with the world. We say it's sin, but they say, no, it's groups overpowering other groups. The fundamental human problem is oppression of people, not sin. And so what is the answer? The biblical worldview is the answer is the cross. The answer is repentance. The the answer is falling on our face and saying, God, transform me and create in me a clean heart. But critical theory says the only way to do this, because there is no God, there is no image of God. It's just groups overpowering other groups. Critical theory says activism is the solution, riots. Tear down monuments. Shut off dialogue. Only if you agree with me can you talk. Dismantle all power structures, not the cross of Jesus. And so our greatest moral duty, if we buy into critical theory, our greatest moral duty is to destroy hegemonic or dominant people groups or power. I remember... um, and I'll, I'll quit here in just a couple of minutes. You didn't have anything to do today anyway, right? Okay. Um, when I was in seminary at Anderson, uh, good school, good seminary, a little more liberal theologically than my leanings in the seminary. Um, I had a great, I loved my church history professor, Dr. Froes, He was a German, great, great, um, church history teacher, but he, I I didn't even think about it when he would say it, by the way, let me tell you this quick little story. He was known to be the hardest grader of papers. Nobody, everybody would say, I'm sure others did, but they would, nobody could get an A with Dr. Froes, not on a paper. You turn in a paper and if you get a B, you just need to be happy. Nobody would get an A. Well, I turned in my first paper and I got an A and, and I was, you know, I told everybody, of course, because I got an A and, um, but there were no comments. Just an A at the bottom of the paper. It's like a nine-page paper. At the bottom, there was an A, red A, and and so then I don't know. Six weeks later, we had turned in another paper, and I got an A minus. And um, I mean, I should have been happy about an A minus. But there were no comments on the A or the A minus. And so I thought, you know, what's the difference between an A and an A minus? I would like a little input here. And so you know, I. I guess I thought I was still in third grade and could get input. I was working on my doctorate instead. But I said, Dr. I got an A on this paper and an A minus on this paper. And there's no comment on it. Can you help me? And he just looked at me and he said, the A minus is a comment. And that was it. So in other words, that paper was not nearly as good as the first one. And so and he walked away. He gave me nothing. That was it. The A minus was a comment. But I remember Dr. Froze saying, and I, I noticed a little... I notice now a little theological bend. He would finish the church history lesson and he would always say, but remember the people that won wrote it. And uh, in other words, it was tainted. It was biased because it was the people that won. People that had power that actually are the ones that wrote it. And I'm not here to dismiss whether or not there is some truth in that. But the problem is that's then been taken to the word of God. It's been taken to the American constitution. And it's not about what the people that wrote said, but it's about what we want to interpret it to say. In other words, we are totally gutting objective truth. And so the role of critical theory to fix this is to overturn power structures, And their purpose is to work for the liberation of all oppressed people groups. And this informs most, if not all, of secular academics. And now we're a few generations into this, a couple generations into you and your sons and your daughters and your grandsons and your granddaughters being told this that the problem with the world is oppressive power groups. And that, by the way, you just evolved anyway, and there's no purpose for your life than to overturn the power structures. And they're told that by people with all those letters behind their names. Now look at me before you cheer me on. And the church has done a miserable job on two fronts. We have not equipped our young people with truth and we have not modeled loving our neighbor you see what happens is when they grow up in a church and they see there are there is racism whether it's systemic or not i would argue no i would argue our system is not made for that but hearts are still sinful. And when our young people watch in the church, us be racist, whether it's just casual or a joke or the way we act or the way we treat others, they see that in us and they're not given truth. We've failed on both fronts. And so when they hear an answer, when they recognize their heart of hearts knows that, you know, you know what they know, they really do know that all men and women are created equal. They, there is an inner sense. God has stamped eternity on the hearts of all people. And so they go and they know, you know what? We should be treating everybody the same. We're all the same. They get that, but they haven't seen a model and they haven't been given truth. And so when they're given another agenda and another worldview, they jump on. And we get mad at the people with the other worldview instead of repenting and changing from within and saying, God, we've got to turn this around. We've got to change this. I want you to stand with me. This is an awkward place to end. I had planned on getting through another four pages of notes. I didn't in the first service, so I didn't even try in the second. So this is kind of like landing in an airplane with no wheels, all right? So we're just going to, all right? But, but listen, come back next week. I'm going to walk this on through, and the next week after that as well. But here's what I'm going to tell you. I I wish I had an answer to all of this. We're we're just here. We're we're us. And uh, I can't fix... None of us can fix the world. I don't want to be... I want to stay optimistic. I will tell you, I'm not absolutely certain America's going to turn around. I hope to God it does. Not certain it will. But I do know this. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And until he returns... We have a responsibility. The kingdom of God is like a a mustard seed. It's like a little leaven. It's going to grow and develop. And so we want to be faithful where we're at. And and here's, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Paul says to Timothy, I'm writing these things to you so you'll know how to conduct yourself in the church which he then gives some descriptors. And one of the descriptors is it, it's the pillar and the foundation of truth. The church is supposed to be upholding truth. That's one responsibility. The second responsibility is we are to love our neighbors ourselves. I'm going to ask you to really be honest before God and say, you know, it's real easy for us to say, Oh yeah, we're going to uphold the truth. And, and I think the church has kind of gotten that idea. And we've, We've hammered people with the truth because we're upholding the truth. But that's only one part of what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to love our neighbors ourselves. So if we're hating people or or disowning them or treating them differently while we're preaching this, we're not accomplishing anything. We're not not living for God if we're preaching this. We're hypocritical if we're preaching this and not loving our neighbors ourselves we've got a long way to go. I've got a long way to go. I'm just going to be honest. I've got a long way to go. And I can't do it in in, in the flesh. I need the Holy Spirit to help me. With your heads bowed for just a moment, how many would honestly say, I'm not asking you to do anything but say, I want, I want to be an upholder of truth and I want to learn to love my neighbor as myself as a godly way and I need the Holy Spirit to help me do that how many would raise your hand and say I I desire that we're going to talk about this more next week and the following week but I want us to sing this chorus because we need the Holy Spirit's help come Holy Spirit I need you Come, sweet spirit, I pray. Come in thy strength and thy power. Come in thy own gentle way. And I want us to ask the Holy Spirit to help us, to strengthen us, to convict us. Don't don't run from conviction. If the Holy Spirit convicts you, respond. It's the greatest thing in the world to be convicted and purified and cleansed and be reconciled.